Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome to New Books Network Film. My name is Annie Burke, and uh, today my guest is Isaac Butler, who is here to talk about his latest book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which comes out uh, February 2022. Um, A little preview. Everyone loves to speculate about method actors and the lengths to which they'll go to turn in a raw, authentic performance. But what are we talking about when we talk about the method? And by we, I don't just mean viewers and innocent bystanders, but scholars, practitioners, and critics. I'll go one step further. According to my guest today, uh, Konstantin Stanislavski, the Russian theater director and acting teacher whose system provided many of the parameters for American method performance, had a predilection for changing his mind or forgetting his own principles. Uh, he is said to have remarked of one of his own a- acting exercises, quote, what idiot thought that up? Idiocy, genius, or just another tool to get the job done? Is method acting a matter of making pitiful, serious faces, as Gene Hackman once described it? Or is the method the real powerful emotions motivating these expressions? Or is it something else entirely? Uh, very fortunate to be asking these questions of Professor Butler, who is a critic, director, podcaster, and teacher of theater history at the New School. Thank you for joining me today, Isaac. Oh my gosh, it is yeah. such a pleasure to well, be here. let's start off by letting you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to a life in the theater. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I sort of have no memory of my life when it wasn't a life in the theater because I was a child actor uh, when I was about 12. I started acting professionally, uh, which ended at the end of high school. But, you know, I was always thinking of myself in terms of the theater. You know, I went to go see plays a lot as a kid, first children's plays. And then the first adult play I saw when I was 10 or 11 with St. Joan at the Folger uh, Shakespeare Theater. So, you know, it's just, I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is a great theater town, has a ton of theater going on. It's very sophisticated, complicated theater scene. And so uh, it's always been a part of me. Um, 
when I was 12, I auditioned for and got into a uh, musical called Falsetto Land, which if you're familiar with the musical Falsettos is actually the musical Falsettos is actually two different musicals. March of the Falsettos is the first act and Falsetto Land is the second act. They were written about a decade apart. And so this was of, of that second half of the show. And um, it was really a life-changing experience for a lot of reasons. First of all, the show was a hit. It ran for a hundred performances. It was like, uh, uh, you know, it was very, I got recognized in the street. It was, you know, interviewed by papers. It was like, it was a very heady experience for a 12 year old who didn't have a lot of confidence outside the stage age to have uh and then on top of that you know this is 92 93 so it's a play about homosexuality and family and the aids crisis you know during the the real some of the real darkest years of the aids crisis you know and right before um the end of the reagan era and the beginning of the clinton era and so you know, it really intertwined the idea of theater as an art form and theater as part of a community and theater as a political action uh, in my heart. You know, I've never been able to escape those three things sort of being intertwined. It's never been a question for me that they're that they're intertwined. And so um, in high school, I started pursuing acting pretty seriously. I started taking adult acting classes at the theater that had done Falsetto Land, which was the studio theater. And, um, you know, the director of that show, who was the founder and artistic director of the theater, gave me a book which will wind up being very important to the story of the method. Uh, Richard Boleslavsky's Acting the First Six Lessons for My Birthday. Um, that's the first book in English uh, that explains Stanislavsky's system. And, um, uh, you know, and I read it and then I took classes and I was very interested in sort of all of these ideas of the, you know, doing animal pantomimes and and, and thinking about objectives and actions and um, effective memory, which is the which we'll talk about today, I'm sure, which is the calling up of um, strong emotions linked to past memories. And um, it was just an incredible, heady time in my life. Then I went to college uh, uh, with the idea that I was going to be an actor, and I was immediately cast in um, this play called Talk Radio by Eric Bogosian, which, um, you know, was made into actually a kind of wonderful, lesser Oliver Stone film, but I find it kind of hypnotic and brilliant. Um, but it's it's a play in which the main character who I was playing um, has a nervous breakdown on stage over the course of about 100 minutes while chain smoking. Um, and... I just didn't, I had these sort of couple years of, of Stanislavski based training of sort of how to go into myself. And I was working with student directors who didn't know what they were doing. That's no student director knows what they're doing. That's not a insult to them. Um, if Connor, if you happen to be listening to this, I'm not angry about it. Um, but the, um, uh, in order to do that, to have that nervous breakdown every night, uh, I was really having to go to some pretty dark places within myself. It's the only way I knew how to do it. I was also chain smoking, uh, for like an hour and a half. So I would smoke like 15 cigarettes over the course of doing the play. So I was feeling physically and mentally ill while doing it. Um, people were telling me, you know, that was a great, you did a great job, but I'm also very worried about you after they would see it and, and all this stuff. And I just realized like, 
I wasn't really emotionally psychically tough enough to be an actor that it actually was, if I wanted to keep doing that, I needed to be tougher and I wasn't tough enough. And so I actually transitioned to being a director and to working with actors and only acting very sporadically. And then over the course of my twenties transitioned from that to being a writer, which is most of what I do now is, is, is writing. Uh, I still direct occasionally, but you know, the questions of that whole experience really lingered with me about like, well, what is acting? Was it necessary for me to do that? You know, and, and the more I started investigating those questions and looking at the history of these ideas of what good acting is, you know, I realized, as I'm sure every scholar of acting realizes, that there these are culturally contingent, culturally constructed answers to the question of what is good acting. And I became very interested in how we constructed our particular answers in America and what the effect of changing our mind about what good acting is in the middle of the 20th century, because we really changed our mind as a culture about what it means to be a good actor. And where I think we're in the midst of changing our mind again right now, the effect that that had on our popular culture, um, even beyond theater and film, which was huge. Um, I just found that like to be a really, really interesting story. And so that's sort of how I embarked on this book. That's, uh, that's great. Um, I, I've been, also thinking about this question of like what we think good acting is. And I think one of the most confusing parts about method or, you know, really the origins of method with Stanislavski is it seems like everyone has like a little piece of him, but at the same time, it's not fully Mm -hmm. orthodox. Um, Done a little work on early cinema and Lillian Gish would talk about how Griffith was using Stanislavski through its subtlety and anyone who watches a Griffith film would might not necessarily pick up, pick up on the subtle subtlety, which, reads to most of us as histrionic. Um, yeah, yeah. Griffith and subtlety are not two words that are associated in my mind. Um, so I I see that like there's this personal dimension that like you came to this project, you know, having been an actor um, and then of course being a, a director and a theater professional. I'm also curious to what extent you feel like it was a continuation or a departure from your, fir- from your uh, first book, which you co-authored with Dan uh, Coyce in 2018, an oral history of angels in America uh, called the world only spins forward. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, Tony Kushner as a writer is someone who is combining the Brechtian tradition with the narrative realist tradition. Um, I think there's a part of him as a young man who did not want to be a narrative realist and then discovered over the course of writing (laughs) Angels in America, he was sort of cursed to be a narrative realist, you know? And so he's always been trying to square that circle in his work. And I think that's part of what makes it so rich. Um, I can remember one interview in particular, and I think this story is actually in the book. I can't remember because that book is long and there's a lot of stories in it. We interviewed 250 people for The World Only Spins For. But I was talking to Joe Mantello, um, the great actor and director, probably most famous for directing Wicked. Um, and uh, uh, Joe and Angels in America was sort of the last thing he did as an actor before changing his focus to being a director. And Joe mentioned that there's a scene in Angels in America, if you don't know it, where um, one of the characters walks into a bathroom and another one of the characters, Lewis, who Joe orig- played on Broadway, is um, crying hysterically. Like just the lights come up and he's sobbing and it's a huge you know, a uh, moment of weeping. And Tony told him, just do it. Just fake your way through it. Don't 
feel like you have to emotionally prepare for it. Just jump in and see what happens. And uh, Joe Mantello came out of Circle in the Square, which was run by Marshall Mason, who studied with Lee Strasberg and was very steeped in kind of Stanislavski. And 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 Joe said to me, it was really a, a, a revelation for me that I didn't have to do all that Stanislavski stuff to get there. And I've thought about that story a lot over the course of, of, of writing this. Um, uh, it's also interesting to me that the history that I'm telling in the method ends around at the point that the story of the world only spins forward begins, which is the early, late eighties, early nineties, end of the 20th century. So in a weird way, um, I'm moving backwards in time. So maybe my next book will be about something in the 17th century. We'll just keep going backwards and backwards until finally I'm like uh theater in ancient Rome or I, I'm not I, an expert, I but I'll have you back. Uh, for your next, for that okay, next one, um, the way that you talk about the lineages of the method that, um, you know, so-and-so who worked with it, like, it seems like he swallowed the spider to catch the fly and then Lee Strasberg ate all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel as though like there's a lot of opportunity for miscommunication, like a game of telephone or something about what method even is. So to sort of kick off our conversation about what we're even talking about, which it may take the full time to fully get to the bottom of, and we still may not, according to many of the anecdotes, it seems like that has, will be one of those conferences Stella Adler holds that everyone leaves more confused than they came in. Uh, this oh is the God. question I'm getting to. What is the biggest or most egregious misconception of the method that you encountered? Oh, yeah. Well, the the big one is, is that most of the public thinks the method is one thing and people who teach the method think it's another thing. And while they both derive from Stanislavski, those two things are opposites of one another. And uh, I am a descriptivist by nature, so I don't really like saying that the public is wrong. You know, that's not a stance that I like to take, right? Um, but the method has actually had sort of three major definitions over the course of its history. I, I've been trying to get this down to as short as possible, so forgive me if I go long here. But the original definition, which is when Stanislavski's techniques are being adapted by the group theater, and they're primarily being adapted by first by Lee Strasberg, then by Lee Strasberg and Harold Klerman, and then by an ever-widening group of people who start disagreeing about how to adapt them, including... Aaliyah Kazan, Bobby Lewis, uh, Sanford Meisner, very famously Stella Adler. I'm sure we'll get to that confrontation eventually. Um, uh, You know, they all thought the term the system, which is what Stanislavski used, was kind of pretentious. They thought that it was too, ooh, we're going to systematize acting and acting is an art form and you can't really work with it that way. And it was sort of too highfalutin. And so they started calling what they did their method, the method of the group theater with a lowercase m. And if you read Harold Clerman's writing in the 40s and even up to the early 50s, because he's asked many times to write about what the method is, he's like, the method basically is like any of these various adaptations of Stanislavski's theories in the United States. That's the method. And it has a lowercase m. In the early 50s, that changes. Lee Strasberg takes over the actor studio uh, in the early 1950s, uh, and the term the method gathers to it in uppercase M, and the other teachers of Stanislavski's theories who really personally dislike Strasberg and also disagree with him about the interpretation stop using that term for what they do. And so it becomes very specifically what Lee Strasberg teaches and what people who are affiliated with the actor studio 
teach. That is a primarily, but not exclusively, psycho-emotional um, uh, process that is most famous or perhaps most notorious for the affective memory exercise, which is where you recall the sensory details associated with a strong memory from your past in order to literally trigger yourself emotionally. So there's a scene that calls for me to feel grief. I want to preface this by saying my father's very much alive, but there's a scene that that that, that calls for me to feel grief. And so I'm going to think about watching my father pass away, but I'm not going to describe it visually or describe the emotion. I'm going to describe the feel of his hands, the antiseptic smell of the hospital, the beeping of the machine. And then eventually through doing that, I'll come up with a trigger. Maybe it's just the beeping of the machine. And all I have to do is think of that and I will feel grief. And you can train yourself to do that. That's a, you know, that's what he was sort of most famous for. That's not the totality of what the method was, but that's what it's most famous for. A lot of it had to do with sort of finding the the psychological territory within yourself and bringing that to the character. What people think the method is today is that it's associated with Daniel Day-Lewis. It's associated in a sort of parodic form with Jared Leto. It's um, where you live as the character. You do a sort of very in-depth form of research into what the character's world and life and body might be like. Then you transform yourself in some way, and then you sort of refuse to break character on set. And the point where that changes is uh, Robert De Niro, because that was essentially Robert De Niro's process in the 70s, very uh, in the late 60s and throughout the 70s and in the early 80s. I'm not entirely sure what his process is today because he's a little cagey about process stuff but that's essentially de niro's process and so there's a weird way in which what the public thinks is the method is really de niro's method and de niro did not like strasberg de niro is not a psychological actor he will tell you very overtly acting's not about psychology it's about behavior and what de niro is actually doing is a very extreme form of what he learned from Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg's main rival throughout the 20th century. Um, So there's just this bizarre disconnect, but I find those kinds of disconnects as a cultural historian and critic, that's really exciting. That's where the meat is. How did it happen that as a culture, we think this thing is the exact opposite of what it is? That's that's great. That's gravy. So I I actually really enjoy that stuff. I try not to be pedantic about it. It, it, To me, it's kind of thrilling. I I completely completely agree. I think, and I think that part of what sustains that kind of miscommunication is that we like to, that audiences like the idea that we're watching this kind of um, breakdown of reality, a kind of like theater of hysteria um, that attracts, yes. that's attractive yeah. in some way. Although I have to quote Pauline Kael, I'm going to become, I'm a fan of smart, mean women like Pauline Kael and Stella Adler. That's probably going to come through uh, in this conversation that she said of De Niro and Raging Bull. What De Niro does in this picture isn't acting exactly. I'm not sure what it is. It definitely isn't pleasurable. Um, yeah. And so, Whereas I think a lot of people today are like, that is actually the pinnacle yeah. of American acting. That's the, that's that's the prop, perhaps the greatest 
male on-screen performance since on mm-hmm. the waterfront, you know, and it's certainly the most influential male on-screen performance since Brando, since the height of Brando, right? Um, but at the time, people were like, what the fuck is this? This is disgusting. What is he yeah. doing? You know, um, it was a very, very controversial performance. It won the Oscar, but the film got very mixed reviews, including by champions of Scorsese and De Niro, uh, and it was a flop. Uh, and it's now one of the most influential American movies of the second half Very of the 20th so. century. Well, I, t- to quote a famous method film, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. As we all know, Julie Andrews <laughs> lived as a nun yeah. and then uh, became a governess just to yeah. prepare for that Did movie. Did a number on those the, the Von Trapp children though, living in that yeah, yeah um, exactly. But I, I do want to backtrack. You gave a great capsule, but I want to slow down a little bit so we can get into some of the details of how this, and I totally. cringe to try to define this, reading off my notes, naturalistic mode of psychophysical acting. That I don't know that guy. Um, uh, from Stanislavski, yeah. meaning it's naturalistic as opposed to sort of more, um, uh, what's the opposite of that? Expressionistic, and it's combining the psychological sure. and the physical. That uh, this. This sort of school of thought that was largely engineered by Stanislavski at the turn of the century in uh, the turn of the 20th century in Russia, he is usually pinpointed as the godfather of all of this, but he didn't do it alone. As you describe in this book, he was working with the Moscow Art Theater, sort of just one person in in sort of a host of talents and writers and actors and producers uh, in the Moscow Art Theater's offshoot, the first studio. So I feel like what we need to talk about first is that even though Stanislavski is this sort of starting point of this history, um, I don't want to say he gets too much credit, but others sort of get pushed aside in this narrative. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I don't think that anyone accomplishes anything alone. We all have collaborators, you know, the individual I'm not even sure the individual is actually the core unit of society because we all play different people depending on who we're talking to, right? So I'm a very big fan of sort of social relations. At the same time, you do have to organize a narrative in a way that is comprehensive and, you know, that people are going to want to read all the way through and that you can smuggle lots of stuff in while keeping them interested. And and so it does, the book does focus on on individuals. But yeah, I mean, for one thing, Stanislavski is inheriting and adapting ideas from all over the place. There was in Russia a, compared to the rest of the world, lengthy history of naturalistic acting. It was not a majority movement, but there was a, it's not like France where it was like everything's presentational, right? Um, uh, uh, in the mid century, and by mid century, I mean mid 19th century, there was a serf actor, so a, a slave who eventually with his acting wages bought his and his family's freedom named uh, Shepkin, Mikhail Shepkin, and he uh, pioneered naturalistic the naturalistic style of acting in Russia. And he taught it to a bunch of people. And one of the two of them, a husband and wife team by the surname of Fedotov taught Stanislavski that when he was a young man, their mechanism of naturalism was entirely stylistic. It should be said, this is naturalism as a style, which is to say, you know, you speak a little quieter and you do a little bit less and you just seem a little more real. Um, uh, and it was that kind of style of acting that Stanislavski and Vladimir Nemirovich Donchenko uh, brought to the Moscow Art Theater when they co-founded the Moscow Art Theater with a group of actors um, who were also all interested in um, that style. One of them, uh, 
Meyerhold would go very, very far afield of that style, of course. Um, so eventually what happens is Stanislavski has a crisis of faith in himself as an actor in 1905 and 1906. He They did roles in rep, so he's playing these parts that he's been playing for like a decade and he's doing them on stage. He's like, this is soulless. There's no soul. I'm just, this is all style. There's nothing going on inside. I'm not feeling it. You know, uh, and most of his colleagues at the time were like, this is just a dry spell. Everyone has dry spells. But Stanislavski was a relentless perfectionist and having dry spells was not good enough. And so he set out to try to figure out how you could be inspired on demand. Right. Painters don't have to worry about that. Us writers, we don't actually have to worry about being inspired on demand. Most of the time we sit down and we write and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. And then you rewrite it and you have good days and bad days. But it doesn't work like that for actors. You have to be inspired at 8 p.m. when the curtain goes up. And so he was trying to solve that problem and that led him to a lot of different theorists tolstoy <laughs> uh theodule rabot who's sort of the father of french psychology um this uh Viserium, uh sorry uh, uh belinsky who was a, a russian critic you know he went through sort of all these ideas and adapted them and out of them came this idea of the system but the system was created experimentally. Uh, we keep saying this word, the system, but if you see it on the page, Stanislavski insisted that it all be in lowercase and in quotation marks because he never wanted it to be codified. He always wanted it to be changing and improving. Um, so the weird thing about the system is that it's not systemic. Um, and so while he was working on it, he's constantly experimenting first with the actors at the Moscow Art Theater, and then they get kind of fed up with that because they want to just do the plays already. And so he founds this thing called the studio. And then eventually it's called the first studio with a generation of younger actors, some of whom trained at the Moscow Art Theater, some of whom trained at other theater schools around. Um, but the weird thing is the teaching of the system of the first studio isn't done by Stanislavski. He's not teaching there. Uh, the guy who actually ran it is this guy named Suler, who is Stanislavski's best friend and right-hand man. And he's actually the one who figured out how to teach it to people. And then the various students at the first studio all become artists and teachers in their own right, and they spread it all over the place. So it is absolutely true that Stanislavski did not do any of this on his own. And without both the resistances that he faced from certain people and the cooperation and collaboration he faced from others, we would have no idea what right. the system is. So it's a, it, there's a sort of two, potentially two, at least two different factors at play in terms of why his system seems to have en encountered this game of telephone, which is other teachers picking up his system and interpreting it their own way. And also the fact that he intended the yep. system to change. And so he does have different, yes. if you pick up early Stanislavski and you run with that versus picking up later Stanislavski and you run with that, you're going to have a different at least a different syllabus, if not an entirely different approach to introduce your students. Yeah, totally. So Stan Stanislavski, like the other actors of his time, trained his what we call his instrument, you know, externally. Most of his training, he was a competent opera baritone. Uh, he was, you know, he he knew how to use his body. It was all he did a lot of physical and vocal training. So when he started the system, he started just focusing on the internal mechanism because no one had developed a way of training the internal mechanism or creative life of an actor before really i mean he was one of the first people to to do it you know and so he set out to do that then many years later um 
during you know in the 19 teens he has a that so that that first crisis when he's on tour is sometimes called the stockman crisis because he was playing stockman and enemy of the people when he started feeling this this that he was just this sort of automaton the next crisis he has is called the salieri crisis because he was playing salieri and pushkin's mozart and salieri which is the basis of uh peter schaffer's play and later the film amadeus so you have some idea of what that role is even if you don't know the play and he he realized that he was feeling everything the character was supposed to feel. He was connecting to the character's soul. He was achieving the thing that was the highest goal of the system and the method, which is this Russian term, perizhevania, which means experiencing roughly or re-experiencing, you know, the psychic melding of, of, but the audience wasn't getting any of it. None of it was being communicated beyond the footlights. And that's when he realized that he needed to go back to the physical method of act, to the physical component of acting and integrate the two. And so you see, he'd always been interested. It is not true that he neglected the physical before. It's that he already knew that stuff, right? So now it was like, now that I know how to incarnate the character, how do I express the character and how do I develop the means of expression of my experiencing? And so if you read his writing from the next decade, it is much, much, much more focused on the external. That is not because he was during that time neglecting the internal. It's because he had already done that and he was moving on to the next thing. So you're absolutely right. You know, you, you take, um, it, it, the blind man and the elephant cliche is somewhat relevant to looking at the writings of Stanislavski. He also wrote so, so much. Some of it contradicts itself. Some of it, uh, he's developing different terms for the same ideas. Um, sometimes he's using weird metaphors that don't make any sense. Sometimes he's writing these sort of fake dialogues between people. You know, he's not a particularly great writer. And so the other thing that happens is, you know, and this happens also with Lee Strasberg and the other people in the United States who were also usually not great writers, is that an apocrypha um, it, it, uh, arises around them and of things they said, of ideas they may have had, or, oh, what they really meant by this is that, or, oh, if you look at this speech, they said this. And so this word actually has a private, you know, uh, connotation. And so that is one of the things that makes it very, very hard to ever pin down exactly what is meant uh, at various times in the system and the methods history. I also want to talk about, as we sort of transition to looking at how the method moved to the United States, the kind of political pressures that are shaping the system and later will shape conversations around group theaters productions, yeah. uh, you know, who who's been to what meetings and when, if they went to the actor's studio directly <laughs> afterwards. So uh, that's a bit of a preview of what to follow, but I want to talk about sort of Stanislavski was also, in addition to all of these aesthetic and sort of artistic concerns, he's also navigating the Russian revolution and sort of what the sort of state requirements are for what the proper kind of art is uh, a more realist approach um, and sort of just, you know, Handling Lenin, Stalin, whatever. Uh, so we can see the kind of the pressures that he is adapting to when he talks about what acting is, what it means to represent the Russian people. Um, and I want to think about how that's going on around the same time that the Moscow Art Theater goes on tour to the United States. Can you talk about mm -hmm. that? Their field trip? The most yeah, totally. Field trip totally. of American so, acting in the first half of the country. It, it, absolutely. Stanislavski's 
politics are a really complicated subject. He cultivated an image of total naivete and of being purely apolitical. Um, according to uh, Nemirovich Danchenko's memoir, Stanislavski's nickname from his admirers was the big infant because of how kind of naive he was. Let's be real. You do not survive two czars, the failed 1905 revolution, the successful 1917 revolution, the Russian Civil War, Lenin and Stalin, and have no understanding of how politics works. It's just it, I just don't it, you can't be one of the preeminent cultural people in your nation through all of that change and survive it and be like, oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing today. You know, so my feeling is, is that that um, and there's some reports Joshua Logan writes about it in the New York Times that he studied with Stanislavski in the early days of Stalin. Stanislavski did not have very kind things to say about Stalin, but would only say them in a soundproof room and, you know, stuff like that. So we don't really know what Stanislavski's politics were. He always insisted that his work was apolitical, that art was art and politics was politics. He's saying this even when he's producing Maxim Gorky plays. So, you know, like uh, um, that what he's interested in is truth and, you know, he's interested in art and so on. Um, however, after the revolution, uh, the revolution and the civil war have a profound impact. The Russian civil war, we should say, have a profound impact on the Moscow Art Theater. A chunk of their actors, including two of their leads, wind up stranded. Um, uh, and can't get back to Moscow for years because the white army, which is to say the anti-communist army is in between them and the city. And so they wind up moving to Prague and starting a theater company in Prague that does old Moscow art theater plays. Um, some of the people involved in the company can't stay in the country uh, because they served and they were officers in world war one, or they don't have the right politics, et cetera. Um, also what happens is um, that the NEP, uh, the new economic uh, program uh, causes a financial crisis in the theater. You know, there's lots of different pressures going on with the theater um, economically, politically. And they decide that the way to solve this, both of these problems, is to go on a tour. And so they're going to tour through Europe and then they're going to, for the first time ever, go to the United States. And they happen to hit the United States at the perfect moment when um, serious art, I'm saying that with a little bit of irony, but you know, serious art is starting to mount its assault on Broadway. The little theaters uh, have come up. Eugene O'Neill has won the Pulitzer Prize for the first time. Um, uh, uh, you know, everyone is sort of starting to think a little bit more seriously about art. Naturalism is starting to make its way from Europe, etc. And then here comes this theater company, and they are doing. You know, they they are immediately embraced as having the greatest acting ensemble New York has ever seen. I mean, it happens like overnight. They get this huge standing ovation and then suddenly there's forums on what are the secrets of the Moscow Art Theater? How do they do this? What do they do? How's it going? How how, how does this work? You know, um, uh, uh, John Barrymore goes to see them and writes a letter which is reprinted in the Times about how it's the most brilliant acting he's ever seen. Everyone wants a piece of this thing because they, they really are just blown away by the quality of the work that they are seeing. And it just so happens that this guy, Richard Boleslavsky, 
who was one of those people who could not return to Russia because of his World War I service and his politics, um, is stranded in New York. He's helping the Moscow Art Theater out on this tour. He's assistant directing. He's I think he maybe plays a couple of small roles, but don't quote me on that. Um, and he gets Stanislavski's permission, because he speaks a little bit of English, to start giving talks on the system and how it works. And so he starts lecturing on the system and how it works. And then he uh, is invited to start a theater school. And he starts a theater school, the American Laboratory Theater in New York City. Uh, His primary acting teacher is another member of the Moscow Theater who was not allowed to return to Russia named uh, Maria Ospinskaya, who goes on to be a a somewhat beloved character actor in Hollywood briefly after this. And... uh, um, uh, they start teaching what become the next generation of people who will bring the system throughout the United States. So the revolution in art in the United States really starts there with them and that company. There's so much fabulous detail you give about these characters, these people who you're mentioning. Every single one of yeah. them feels like they could be part of it. Th- they could be the center of a thousand page novel. So that's just my, I'm going to periodically <laughs> plug that people should listen to this podcast and immediately buy this book. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. They all have big personalities. I mean, one of the things that made this book fun, because, you know, I conceived of it as a biography Mm -hmm. of an idea. That was my way of, because you need some rules when you're just looking at the blank page. I was like, how about biography of an idea? And, and, you know, what was helpful about that is is that each person whose name appears in this book is someone with a huge colorful personality and a weird life story. And so you'll encounter a lot of those over, over the course of it. Uh, Speaking of big personalities, all trying to live together. uh, Some of Boleslavsky's students and, you know, some of their buddies, frenemies, enemies uh, came together to work on the work to assemble and work uh, in the group theater, which you mentioned before Mm -hmm. formed in 1931 Manhattan, uh, so many major players that you're, we're going to talk about for the rest of our our conversation. Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, her one-time husband, Harold Klerman, playwright Clifford Odets, Ilya Kazan. They got their start there, um, and their proclaimed mission was to discover and produce a distinctly American form of theater that really is imported in many ways from the Moscow Art Theater. What could possibly go wrong 20 years later for them on that track, I ask you? Um, so let's talk a little bit about the politics of the group theater and how they connected it to the aesthetics yeah. that they were sort of putting into Broadway. Yeah. So once the system sort of enters the group theater, which is when they start calling it their lowercase Mm -hmm. m method, it does become expressly political. We are, we Americans are new is a thing that Harold Clerman says to his cousin, Aaron Copeland. That's also another weird thing about how small these circles were, right? Um, I'm reading this biography of Jerome Robbins right now and half the characters in it are in my book because it was just like, it's all the Jews (laughs) in New York. Anyway, the, um, the, um, we Americans are new. Right. We've been through the 20s. The 20s were a bullshit decade. The lost generation, that's done. Now, um, through the ashes of the Depression, through the wreckage of the Great War, America, the new country, can create a new kind of person, a new kind of collective social relationship, a new way of existing in the world. This is actually, you know, if you read Steinbeck's East of Eden, for example, this is the note that East of Eden ends on, even though it's written in the 19, it's published in the 1950s. This, this sort of optimistic, utopian, leftist vision 
of America and that art and the way art was made could help birth it. I'm immensely moved by this vision for all of its American exceptionalism. And they had tons of blind spots around race and gender. You know, like uh, I find that vision intensely moving that, that you would try to kind of create a utopian community of art and discover the new artist and the new way of being in the world. But the funny thing is, of course, because they're American, maybe, or, or existing in America or whatever, you know, one of the things that comes out of this, one of the ironies of it is that what comes out of it on the, on the other end is the most individualistic way of looking at acting ever, you know, like, like, like they went into this to create something collectively and they came out of it. The thing they collectively created was an individualist vision of acting. That's one of the many ironies of the story of the group theater. Um, so they were all leftist Harold Clerman in the fervent years, his biography, his uh, memoir written right after the group closes. It's a great book. I highly recommend people read it. He's a wonderful writer. It's very weird. Um, he sort of says, Oh, well, we were all children. We were all naive. Um, you know, we have these political beliefs and yes, some of us were communists, but like, what does that even mean? They were just, who cares? Um, you know, uh, they're, they're, they were communists. There was a communist cell within the group. Eventually by the middle of the thirties, there was a communist cell in the group. They would meet in Morris Karnofsky's dressing room, uh, uh, after, after performances and rehearsals, um, Kazan and Odette's and Lee Strasberg's eventual wife, Paula, were all members, as was Morris Karnofsky and his wife, Phoebe Brand and Roman Bonin and all these other people who are important acting teachers. Um, and, you know, they loved Russia. They loved Russia. They would take trips to Russia to see theater. And they, you know, they, they, they thought that and communism adapted to America. They did not want Soviet communism. They wanted American communism could solve these problems that the depression and world war one had made very clear existed, you know, in the early 1930s, you're coming out of, you're in the midst of the depression. The effects of world war one are still being faced it, it makes sense that you would be like, this is all a horror show. We have to, it's all been destroyed. We don't even have to bother destroying it to start something new again. It has all been destroyed. So now let's get on with making the new thing. And that's what the group were trying to do. Um, in, in some of them were doing it in the streets and protests and things like that and labor organizing. Um, but they were also trying to do that in their acting methods and in their retreats and on stages. The group lasted for about 10 years and ultimately disbanded in 1941, mm -hmm. um, all throughout sort of struggling with what you're saying, this kind of tension between individualism and collectivity. The politics of the plays were very collective. The grudges seemed very personal. <laughs> no, the, the, a lot of actors <laughs> yes. who want to be in plays about the little man, but insist that they will not take a small part. Um so yep. obviously, I mean, that's, that's always part of why the band breaks up, but, uh, why couldn't the group continue after 1941 and what different trajectories did its alums follow? That is a great question. Um, first of all, I just want to say that when you read the story of the group, when you read the fervent years or uh, Bobby Lewis's memoir, Slings and Arrows, or um, the incredible history of the group, real life drama, drama by Wendy Smith, which I highly recommend, they are comfortable with a level of conflict throughout their history that I think most of us would blanch at. I mean, they were like fucking screaming at each other all the time. They were fighting all the time. It was a very emotionally intense organization with very few 
boundaries. Um, many of them were sleeping with each other. You know, uh, Kazan met his future wife in the group. Lee Strasberg met his future wife in the group. Uh, Harold and Stella had an on again, off again thing and eventually got married and then sort of had an on again and off again thing, even though they were married and then eventually divorced and remained friends for the rest of their lives. Um, Odette's was always skirt chasing, you know, like, like, there were there were there were a lot of boundaries that we would insist on that they do not um and uh uh for good and for ill uh, um i i would say that um by the time the company split up there they had already been through a bunch of different upheavals including the resignation of two of the three co-founders Cheryl Crawford and Lee Strasberg um many of the members had left for hollywood or had dropped out they were exhausted. They were broke. That was the other problem. Um, you know, the nonprofit theater system did not exist at the time. So they're trying to do this very idealistic thing, which includes like paying the actors a weekly salary, even when they're not in a show and, you know, all sorts of others, which they never really managed to do consistently. So they're trying to do all of that stuff, but they're trying to do it in commercial theater. They can't take donations. It's just, they're just trying to do that with a normal boom bust commercial theater box office mentality, which is probably always doomed to fail. Um, and they're also exhausted by the failures of the left and America to remake itself over the course of the thirties. By 1941, you have the Hitler Stalin pact. Everyone is very, clear that the united states is going to emerge from the depression by making and selling arms and then eventually getting into the war right like everyone knows that that's coming that 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 they have failed to make the new world they said that they were going to make and also like i can sympathize with this i'm 42 now i have a seven-year-old you know they were only a few years younger than me when the organization split up for the most part um you get tired of living on scraps you know, you get tired of working that hard for so little. And sometimes you do need to like, even revolutionaries got to eat and Hollywood really wanted a lot of these people and a lot of what they had to offer and was willing to pay them a lot of money to do it. So the thing about the group was that it just, that its idea wasn't sustainable. I don't think that it's a tragedy that it ended. I don't think it's a tragedy that that idea was unsustainable. I actually think theater companies probably shouldn't last 50, 60, 70 years like they do today. I think it's okay to do what you came to do and and split up, you know, um, and over the course of that decade, they absolutely changed the terms of um, American theater. And they also introduced Clifford Odets, who's one of the most important writers of the 1930s of uh, in any absolutely. form. Well, um, picking up on what you're saying about some of them went to Hollywood afterward, Francho Tone, who, um, mm-hmm. you know, had that gr- great swimming pool that they all got to enjoy. Um <laughs> Some of yeah. them, I mean, some of them like a decade later wouldn't be able to work at all due to the Hollywood blacklist. Um, yep. Some of them. Two of them were killed yeah. by that blacklist. Three of them were killed by that blacklist, um, actually. And some of them became acting teachers. Uh, so yeah. Lee Strasberg, who you talk about. Uh, famously became the artistic director of the Actors Studio. He was not one of its founders, mm-hmm. but he was brought on by uh, Ilya Kazan, uh, who famously named a number of the group theater participants and, the, and members of the communist cell that you mentioned in the effort to save his yep. own career or, according to his own account, to, you know, save America single-handedly. Yeah. From the communist um, menace, yes. So... 
The thing about Lee Strasberg is that, uh, as you mentioned, he's sort of the method with a capital M. And as a result of sort of engineering capital M method acting within the actor's studio, he managed to take credit for a lot of students and performances that he actually had very little to do with. Um, Yeah, that's true. Not to say that he was the only person sort of benefiting from the blurriness of the method and the blurriness of, of like, you know, who showed up to what yeah. class for how long. Um, but he seems like he's the most egregious offender. So we can use our next couple minutes to talk about the three sort of biggest acting method, little M and big M teachers that came out of the group, which were uh, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, his rival, and probably the one that you hear the least about, which is Sanford Meisner. Uh, yeah, which is interesting because I think Meisner today is in some ways, at least in film, the most influential. Yeah. Um, a lot of people study Meisner, um, you know. Uh, uh, but anyway, yes, yeah, I, I do think that we think of this as the big rivalry between Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler, in part because those two effing yeah. hated each other. And they would talk to reporters about it all the time. Well, Strasberg would talk to reporters and he would try not to mention Stella's name. He'd be like, there is an actress who was in the group theater who argues against this stuff, but he like wouldn't say Stella Adler. And then meanwhile, Stella Adler would call up reporters and be like, he's a <laughs> sick man who's inflicting his sickness on generations of Americans. Um, and Meisner was kind of content to stay out of that and just teach at the neighborhood playhouse and do his thing. Meisner did not like Lee Strasberg. If you read Meisner's book, um, there's an interview with him in it because it's co-written by Meisner and a journalist where he talks very explicitly about that. He and Stella were very close friends. They were both united in their dislike of Strasberg, but Meisner did not do it publicly. Really? He just wanted to kind of, you know, put his nose down. The sense you get from reading it, speaking of the Hitler-Stalin pact, is that people sort of become friends partially in hating a third party. And a lot of the time that third party yeah, is Strasberg. Uh, unless someone, unless you <laughs> yes, hate Stella yeah. Adler more and then you hire Strasberg once Klarman and Adler are through. Uh, at any rate, I think I just want to like draw out because the method is, seems at this point to mean so many things at this mid-century moment, 50s and 60s, you're sort of getting the sense of what Strasberg thinks the method is, what Adler thinks the method is, and what Meisner thinks the method is. And I just want to like explicitly mm-hmm. lay out, what's the method for Strasberg? What is the key thing for Adler? <laughs> sure. So Strasberg, I think it's it, the key thing to think about is the self and the development of the self and then the relationship of the self to the character. So um, – Strasberg is not doing a lot of script analysis with his actors. They're not breaking their scripts down into beats. You know, they're not doing, they're not getting their pencils out. He's not encouraging them to do a lot of scholarly research. One of his students says to me in an interview, you know, he would always say, uh, not so much thinking, darling. I want to see how you would do it. You know, um, and uh, um, his version is, is, has a couple of components. One of them is a line of exercises. It's often called the method line of exercises, which are about unlocking the actor's individual idiosyncrasies. They, uh, an example is, you know, doing your morning grooming routine at the mirror, but without any objects or a mirror. Right. So you have to and it's not about miming. You're not um, this isn't a video interview. So you're not like really exaggeratedly brushing your teeth. It's about thinking about like, what does the toothbrush feel like in my hand? 
What does it feel like to brush my teeth? You know, um, another one is the effective memory exercise, which we've already discussed. Um, the another super controversial one is the private moment where you perform something in class that you know you don't normally allow people to see, which could just be you reading in your room. You know, I mean, like it, it doesn't have to be salacious, but of course, some actors really like being like, "Oh, I'm gonna get naked and pretend to masturbate," or you know, whatever. And so it gathers a certain reputation to itself um the other one which actually there's a very funny account in the new york times of jack nicholson doing it for an interviewer is the song and dance exercise which is where you sing a song like happy birthday but you do it with the syllables and the notes and the sounds so drawn out that it becomes sort of nonsensical and you just sort of you know you make eye contact with the audience and you do happy birthday and it's to then you just see what comes up emotionally and then you do it a second time with sort of these not exactly dance but movements attached to it um so that's part of it but the second part of it had to do with strasberg's incredible eye for bullshit and even people who hated him really believed that he he really knew how to spot bullshit when an actor was performing received notions of behavior instead of doing it truthfully and that eye and the notes he was able to give and his wisdom about the history of theater and the art of acting. Cause he really had read more about that stuff than just about anyone. He was a real autodidact and lay scholar. And, you know, he had a 10,000 book library of theater textbooks and he had read most of them. And, you know, so, so, you know, that, that Strasberg, um, and his approach. And it's a lot more about connecting yourself to the character. You know, this is where we get effective memory. This is where we also get substitution, which is where you take, um, you know, a thing in your own life that's akin to what the character is going through and you kind of swap them in your head, you know, creating the imagined reality of the character. Adler has a totally different approach that is, um, if Strasberg is inside in out, uh, Adler is outside in is how it normally goes, which is not to say technical, like the English it's that it's, um, a lot of research, a lot of script analysis, a lot of connecting yourself to what the writer is doing. A lot of like, you might, if you're playing a character in the Renaissance, she expected you to go to a museum and look at Renaissance painting and look at how the bodies worked because bodies worked differently. She expected you to have a like very in-depth command of what the text is doing at any moment and what the you know and to read everything by or about the writer that you could um she expected you to kind of learn the behavioral habits of the character you know and to really just enter the imagined world of the character as deeply as you possibly could and her process was very much focused on action and problems, which we often think of as objectives, um, uh, thanks to some translation stuff with Stanislavski and with Uta Hagen's books, but um, that, you know, an actor has a character as something they need, right? And which is the problem there. There's a problem they have to solve, which they solve through action, which you can phrase as an infinitive verb. And that action has to be realizable physically that, you know, so much of her technique is going back and back and back to the problem and the action, the relationship between the two. Um, and so that is sort of her in, in, in a nutshell, I guess. Um, and then the uh, third one is Sanford Meisner. And Meisner, in a weird way, is a, the, a bigger departure from either of those than they are from each other. Because Meisner is all about being as 
present in the moment as possible, right? So Strasberg's about the self. Stella Adler's kind of about the soul. It's like you have to enlarge your soul so it can meet and be worthy of playing this character. And um, Meisner is very much about presence, the present moment, being present in the moment with your scene partner and breaking down all the received cliches that interfere with that. And he did that through something called the repetition exercise, which began with, um, well, maybe you and I can do the first step of it. We're just going to say something back and forth. I'm going to say, uh, you are wearing glasses and you're going to say, I am wearing glasses. So I would just go, I am wearing glasses. I am wearing glasses. I am wearing glasses. See, and there we would do that. And if you and either of us tried to act too much and like create like you are wearing glasses, Meisner would be like, no, 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 just repeat it. So you start at the very basics and then you build on top of that until eventually we are acting in a high stakes scene maybe where I have to start with an activity that I don't want to be interrupted. That's high stakes and important to me, whatever it is. And then you knock at the door and you knock at the door in such a way that I feel compelled to answer it. And then I open the door and then you say something and I repeat it and you say something and I repeat it, you know, with intention and we're acting. And then when something changes, when the feeling changes, we switch to a new repeated phrase. So you might, I might open the door and you might burst through and be like, you owe me $20. And I would be like, I owe you $20. You owe me $20, you know? And then eventually it would become, well, I don't have it. You don't have it. I don't have it. You don't mm-hmm. have it, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Um, so that you could learn how to be super present in the moment. And then um, it would move on from there. All three of those teachers move on from there to scene study, but scene study means something different based on those three bases. It seems like they're also almost complementary, like affective memory. They are. Imagination and research, re- receptivity that actors might have, you know, benefit from all of those. That seems to Absolutely. be where the yeah. acting establishment has come. I think you write in the conclusion about totally. how Adler's um, son or grandson runs the grandson runs grandson. the studio, uh, the Adler studio, and mm-hmm. they teach all they teach all the approaches because maybe some people are they teach all the approaches know, need of yeah I one mean, or the other approach. Like Ellen Burstyn, who's probably more devoted to Lee Strasberg in the actor studio than any other person alive. I mean, she took it over after his death. She still teaches there. She still runs it. Uh, she's she took a break from running, but she runs it again now. Um, Ellen Burstyn also studied with Stella Adler. And, uh, you know, she would say in interviews, Stella and Lee are different routes to get to the same, different complementary routes to get the same thing. I think all three teachers were breaking off a piece of Stanislavski and then going as deep into it as possible. Because you have to remember the system had like 40 components. No one can actually do the system for every part. It would take years, you know? And so they're, they're going to the thing that they're the most drawn to and going the most deep into it. And so part of what happens with future generations is they start being like, well, you know, a lot of us get tired of the grudges of our parents, right? And so the future generations of actors are like, well, why does this need to be fought over there's stuff of value in all of these things that people would study with sometimes with all three of them um juilliard which i think has had an enormous amount of success in terms of breaking out actors who turn out to be a big deal i mean the two probably biggest male actors of their generation right now in terms of respect of the field are adam driver and oscar isaac and they both studied at juilliard right and so um they're they're pulling from adler they're pulling from meisner they're pulling from strasburg they're pulling from european clowning you know they're pulling from all over the place and combining it so i really think the future of acting now has turned to uh, a, a more anti-dogmatic place a more like you pick and choose what works for you 
um, that creates certain complications in the rehearsal room when every actor has a different vocabulary you have to use to get to a result. But I think it's ultimately probably healthier. Absolutely. For well, I mean, I think I think when you mention Adam Driver and Oscar Isaac, my mind goes to Star Wars and thinking like, who's the best equipped right. to prepare them for Star Wars? Um, can you use your yeah. emotional memory to play? a fighter pilot in space. Um, maybe, maybe not. But I think that, you know, we take this this idea of the method being really suited to certain kinds of scripts or certain kinds, you know, Odette scripts, uh, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, but that these, but with the move to film, you're finding that you're trying to use these different methods to perform in scripts that are not necessarily, but sometimes are, but other times are not written for a method approach to performance. And yeah. so to think about actors that are working in film, uh, making films that are explicitly method and that or maybe playing Superman's dad and not super method. Let's talk about Marlon Brando. Uh, you single out Marlon Brando's sure. performances um, sort of on stage and off stage and a streetcar named Desire as sort of this just this bomb that explodes in the middle of American acting. Um, it's a demonstration of all that method acting can do. And all that it sort of forecloses or makes sort of difficult for those who refuse to get on the method train. Um, can we talk about Brando's performance as Stanley Kowalski, who was not a student of Strasbourg, but prepare yourself, one of Stella Adler. I had to do that. I had to. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the thing that we have to say is that the most important acting performance in the history of the method on camera is by an actor who was explicitly not a method actor in that in that capital m lee strasberg way and if you called him one in an interview would correct you and he said you know lee strasberg i think he called him a tacky little man you know i mean he 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 uh he really disliked him and he really disliked that strasberg took credit for his work simply because they've been affiliated they've both been affiliated with the actor studio marlon brando was actually a member of the actor studio prior to um, uh, Strasberg's involvement. And he would say my two great acting teachers were Adler and Kazan. Um, so, uh, but it's the ground zero of the method style of film performance, right? If you think of method as a style, as opposed to a technique, the, the foremost example of it is, of course, Brando and Streetcar. And if you look at the movies over the next 20 years, you just see these actors trying to imitate him over and over and over again. Hackman, I have a quote from ha Gene Hackman in the book, well, you know, when we all moved to New York, Everyone was trying to be Marlon Brando. Everyone's trying to, you know, act like him and talk like him. It was all these sort of baby Brandos. I feel like if you show a streetcar named Desire, even to someone today who has never seen it, it's really hard not to be blown away by what Brando's doing because it's it's it feels different and revolutionary even now to me. You know, I mean, that moment where he, uh, uh, I am not an ape, and he's standing there looking like an ape, or when he's trying to explain the Napoleonic code with chicken in his mouth. You know, the 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 way his face is working, the way his body is working in that space, he just seems alive in this way that is like really palpable and shocking. And he's breaking all these rules of good acting at the same time. Um, I just think it's a really, really brilliant performance. And we should also say he's so goddamn sexy. Like he's so beautiful. It almost hurts to look at him in that movie, you know, and it really does the thing that, that, that movie needs, which is like, as it's revealed, what a brute 
he really is and what a monster he is capable of of being it's painful you don't want to accept it about him because he's so beautiful and compelling and charismatic and you can sort of see why stella doesn't want to accept that stuff about him but the way you know? that stanley kowalski dominates all of the care all of the people in his life yeah uh controls them with his his sex and his charisma it is a very sort of apt parallel for what Brando does to Tandy and, and Vivian Lee. Um, it seems as though his method acting puts them off balance because he's so unpredictable and it makes them look dumb and square and cold by comparison. It seems like um, there's some kind of there's some kind of mirroring going on between what he's doing on stage yeah. as an actor and what Kowalski Absolutely. is doing to the people in his life. Maybe not so harsh in, in that particular instance that we do know Brando is capable of incredible cruelty on set, which. Yeah. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, one of the fascinating things for me as a viewer is the movies made over about the decade that the method is emerging, which often have method defined broadly so that it includes Brando and stuff, but it has those actors paired with actors of other disciplines. And you often, the conflicts between the characters are mirroring the stylistic conflicts. Uh, One of my favorite examples is anatomy of a murder where you have Jimmy Stewart, you know, doing his like, Oh, shucks. I'm just a country lawyer thing. Basically dancing circles around a group of younger method, more methody, more naturalistic actors who come, who don't come out of the studio system, mm-hmm. like Ben Gazzara and George C. Scott. And he just dances circles around them and walks away with the movie, which is the story of the movie of this country lawyer who everyone underestimates, who actually it turns out is far more cunning and secretly much darker and 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 ruthless than all of them. That's the story of the movie. So um, I love the, the movies of this period for that reason. Brando was not generous in the sense of caring about whether you did a good job. He was generous in the sense of giving it his all mo- when he wanted to. He could be late. He could be lazy. If he felt conflicted about something, he would flake out on it. You know, he was a mercurial, difficult person. Um, but, you know, um, some actors were thrilled by that. Some actors hated him for it. Um, Carl Malden kind of feels both ways. You know, he found he once had a screaming match with Brando because Brando would vary his timings every time he did one of the scenes with Mitch. Um, but he also says in his memoir, you know, at the same time, the best work I ever did was working with Brando, you know, um, Rod Steiger was famously enraged at Brando because, um, Brando wouldn't stay on set to shoot Steiger's coverage during the, I could have been a contender scene. He filmed his takes and then he left for New York city because he had an appointment with his analyst and Rod Steiger was left sort of trying to cry and reach out to his brother with no one else there. And I think he said this might be apocryphal, but you know, if Brando had just stayed on set that day, I would have won the Oscar for that movie. Um, uh, so, um, But, you know, if I remember correctly, Brando and Vivian Lee got along better than Brando did with Jessica Tandy, who hated him, called him a psychopathic bastard Um, uh, uh, because she was this classically trained British actor. And Brando was just constantly fucking with her and was not wouldn't remember his lines, wouldn't deliver his lines properly, you know, and and stuff like that. I think it was a little bit different by the time Vivian Lee came along because he'd been playing the part already. It was in some ways built around him. 
But I do think that fight in style, I wish we could see that original 48 production on stage. Of course, we'll never, it's one of the great losses that we can't see that. But you can see in Streetcar the way that that fight in between the characters works its way out in style. And that um, Blanche does look square. She does look faker. She's supposed to because she's such an affected person. And the naturalism of Brando's performance heightens our awareness of how presentational she is. But by the end of the movie, because I think Vivian Lee is amazing in that movie. By the end of that movie, her presentationalism has also revealed the shortcomings of his quote unquote authenticity, that it is just another mask that he wears. Um, and sure enough, if you look at Brando's later, more externalized performances, um, you know, in movies um, like uh, the Missouri breaks and stuff like that, where he has a Irish accent and things like that. Some of the ones where he wears prosthetics and stuff, you can see that naturalism is actually just a mask that he can take on and off whenever yeah. he wants. I just watched a bedtime story or bedtime. Story. Oh, it's I've never seen bedtime story. Awful. <laughs> he made a lot of bad movies. I mean, it's remarkable how many bad <laughs> movies he made, but you know, he also made at least three oh, stone course. classics. I mean. And so, uh, no disrespect, but you know, Brando comedy is maybe not his, yeah. his, there's a kind of a, there's a lightness lacking, I think in his performances. Totally. Um, I, the, I, I also want to say, um, it is totally possible to have a method background and to believe in the tenets of the method, to believe in lived truth, to believe in Parajivania and to be a good collaborator with people. It is not the case. I, I want to say this because I think that there's a. It is not the case that you need to mistreat your cast members in order to do that. And in fact, I think it has been often over the history of the method been used as an excuse for people to kind of enact their social difficulties on other people. You know, for example, John Garfield, who's actually the first method star. Um, everyone loved John Garfield. You know, he was, he was well-beloved. Um, there's a whole long list of, uh, women method actors that you don't hear bad stories about. You know, no one, no one has anything negative to say about Kim Hunter. No one has anything negative to say about Ellen Burstyn. No one has anything negative to say about Eva Marie Saint or, you know, um, people seem to love Shelley Winters for all of her, you know, how bonkers she could be and everything. Um, so I do just want to say that, 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 um, I think in part because of Brando, uh, people use the method to enable bad behavior and people mistake the method for bad behavior and they, they are not the same. I, I agree. I think about that in the context of sort of the repeatability of the method. Like how do you get there? Mm -hmm. And one of the seemingly misunderstandings, I think, or a, a misappropriation of method is like that it's everyone's job to get the method actor there emotionally. And like it takes what it takes. So if it means you know, mm -hmm. tormenting your co-star that that's what it takes, but you know, right. uh, not to be overly yeah. Lawrence Olivier about it. I think that there's a middle ground. I think that the, you know, if you want to be called Lincoln, but still order an oat milk latte, that's fine. I don't think that that's a problem. You're keeping yeah. it a professional area. Like it's within the realm of, you know, acceptable accommodation to your approach. Yeah, I was also tweeting with an actor who's worked with Daniel Day-Lewis since you mentioned him. And he said, you know, like a lot of those stories sure. are exaggerated, you know, like like he said, you know, he, he said something like I executed Daniel Day-Lewis in The Crucible. And before our scene where we did that, we were hanging out in the dressing room joking around yeah, like I it's not it's it is not true that he you know, that he actually I never, does. I never said Daniel Day-Lewis. I could have been talking about Henry Fonda as young I, Lincoln. Henry Fonda. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know. That's true. Um, the funniest thing, though, about 
about Daniel Day-Lewis on the set of Lincoln is the the story that he and Sally Field communicated via text message because somehow that felt like it was like writing notes to each other so they would communicate that sure, way because I don't know. Uh, play that Ken Burns music behind it and get to text in. Um, oh back to Brando for a moment. My and Brando to Day-Lewis and back again. I think there is a, there is a through line yeah. because I want to talk about like the mo- what sort of you – invoke is like the Marlon Brando effect. It wasn't just that Marlon Brando was this big star, but that there were copycats and just a general feeling of that. This is the future of stage and screen representation. So it's how method becomes less of an approach and more of a style. And you particularly pinpoint James Dean and his desire to sort of copy Brando and Montgomery Clift, and that that's sort of like there is a connection between that and the adoption of method actors into this new Hollywood tradition of the 60s and 70s. It's not mm-hmm. the same, but it sort of comes a bit a few years later. Yeah, the thing that James Dean does, I'm very hard on James Dean in the book, I'll, I'll admit, in part because I actually just don't think his film performances are good. I mean, like at the, at the end of the day, um, the thing that although he clearly had talent, there was something there beyond being unbelievably beautiful. The thing that James Dean did was take what Clifton Brando and their cohort are doing and turn it into a style. Um, I don't know what was going on inside Dean's head when he's playing those parts, but by imitating them, he is basically saying there is an externalized style that this can result in that, that can be quote unquote method. Um, And so, and because of the subject matter of his films and because he's younger, he then moves that style to youth. It becomes the teenaged style. The method becomes youthful 50s nonconformity and rebellion become associated with the method. So he has those two transformative effects uh, 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 on the method, which in some ways help it move through the fifties and continue on into the sixties and into the seventies. And in each decade, it kind of becomes a different thing. Um, uh, but the thing that Dean does is he makes it, um, a series of stylistic ticks and he makes it uh, something that the young can glom onto. And so uh, another thing that happens as a result is like every young actor wants to be like James Dean and Marlon Brando. And so they all want to come to New York and be at the actor studio. I mean, thousands of people start auditioning for the actor studio over the course of the fifties as a result. Um, and so it really does have this transformative effect on the public's understanding of what the method is. Do you think that the method had to so you're saying that like it moved through the 50s 60s 70s in what ways did it have to change to accommodate you know to move from something like Kazan's Splendor in the Grass which is a personal favorite of mine or this Misfits which is not God, a I love that favorite movie. of mine um into you and I have very similar oh, tastes in movies nice. I'm learning um into you know films like The Graduate Bonnie and Clyde The Godfather which definitely are more more cynical they're sort of more influenced by an art house european tradition than yeah. the films that are prior did method change or was this sort of like its perfect incarnation it was like a you know a effortless marriage from the start yeah it keeps finding these new vessels to be poured into that sort of suit the moment and help shape the moment so in the 50s which i think it's very difficult for us today to truly understand what the conformity culture of the 50s was like and how hardcore it was but to just give you an idea there are articles written about the actor studio that are like horrified that the men wear jeans (laughs) 
You know, I mean, like that's the level of conformity that we're expecting. And so the method becomes a strain of rebellion. Um, it becomes a, uh, 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 it becomes a place where you could dramatize the repression the society was insisting upon because the method is all about subtext, right? So it's all about the thing that's being repressed. It's all about the thing that's not being said. And in the fifties, the value of that is repression and, and, and showing the repression, demonstrating it. Um, something weird happens in the sixties where it's suddenly the method be the, the most famous method actors of that time are these kind of agentic leading men who aren't as vulnerable and aren't as neurotic and are much more solidified. Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, and of course, Sidney Poitier. Now, Sidney Poitier is an interesting example because you can also see the value of the methods, um, emphasis on suppression and repression in his performances, because so much of what Poitier is doing in his movies in the sixties is showing the audience what it costs this unbelievably brilliant black man to stand there and witness what the white people around him are doing, which is what he's often called on to do. He's often standing there reacting to things and the methods very good at training actors, how to react to things in a complex way, even when they're not saying anything. And so the unspoken finds a vessel in Poitiers, I think, but you know, like, it's not like, I mean, Paul Newman's attempts at, neuroticism and stuff in Paris blues are quite wonderful. They're terrible in cat on a hot tin roof, which is an almost unwatchable movie. I think, I mean, he's really awful in it, but then you have movies like the hustler and HUD. If you've never seen HUD, go out and see HUD. I mean, he's like a monument in that movie, you know, um, uh, uh, he's this nasty character who's totally self-sufficient and, you know, he's sort of like Benedict Cumberbatch and power of the dog is sort of like a lesser version of his performance in that. And of course, you know, McQueen, you know, et cetera. So, you know, in the sixties, we're a newly confident nation. We've, we're the Camelot era because of JFK. Right. And so you see that it, it binds these actors, one of whom, another one of Stella Adler's students is Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty's a new kind of sexy, confident man. You know, Bud Stamper's a star football player dating the most beautiful girl in his class. That's very different from the problems of the movies in the 50s. Um, and Kennedy wanted Beatty to play him on camera. Beatty said no, but he wanted, you know, so so that's what's kind of happening there. But then as we go into the 70s from 68 on, you know, um, the movies that the method is attached to, they are more cynical. They are about you know, I'm prying open America and I'm showing you the rot at its heart, you know? Um, and the method becomes, um, really useful for that as well, because now it's like, Hey, here's all the stuff that we've been suppressing. Now we're going to let it out, you know? Um, and the other thing that changes over the course of that time is who gets to be a movie star. And one thing the method's very good at in each of those decades is kind of changing that. So in the 50s, you can mumble and be a movie star, right? In the 60s, you could be a black man and be a movie star. Well, you could be one black man in particular and be a movie star. But in the 70s, it's like you can look ethnic and be a movie star. You can be a white ethnic and be a movie star and not change your name and not get a nose job, not dye your hair. You know, that's relatively new. When you hear actors in the seventies talk about Dustin Hoffman in the graduate, it's like we had never seen an actor who looked like that be a leading man who gets laid in a movie. 
You know, like they had just never seen it before. It was a new thing to have a, a Jew, a short Jewish guy with a big honking oh, I nose. Will say in the 1950s, you know? television seemed to be very receptive to those ethnic representations. And yes. film was reserved for the, you know, and the live golden TV drama. gods, these beautiful as as the studio Absolutely. system burns, like they bring out their most gorgeous <laughs> specimens to distract exactly. and entertain. Uh, but then by the 70s, yes, and, like Elliot Gould is the Brad Pitt of his moment. I don't know if you watch the TV show Community, but there's an amazing episode of that show where they break into a sub basement that's been closed off since the 70s. And in one shot, there's a poster in the background that says campus debate who's sexier, Elliot Gould or Donald Sutherland. And it absolutely captures this thing you're talking about. Yes. Part of what's happening in the 70s is the values of the live TV drama movement of the 50s sort of move into Hollywood. And then they also meet French New Wave, you know, like all these things are kind of churning together. And so, um, you know, all of these actors start breaking out as a, as a result, by the time you get to 1979's Academy Awards, nine of the 10 acting nominees are actor studio members, right? Uh, I think Meryl Streep's the only one who's not an actor studio member of that, of that class. And so, you know, it's, it's a really wild thing that they, they just are, they absolutely meet the moment, um, both because of what, the acting technique is dwelling on what parts of the character are, are being dwelled on, but also because, you know, thanks to Brando and Dean and Clift and all of these other people, like every actor wants to study with Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler and Sanford Meisner. So it's also that it's just so permeated the culture that it's everywhere. It's values are everywhere. The directors of those movies trained with those people too. Sidney Pollack trained with Sanford Meisner. Um, um, uh, shoot, uh, Bogdanovich trained with Adler, Sidney Lumet trained with Lee Strasberg, you know, so, so, so it's not just the actors, it's the writers, it's the directors, it's everyone. And I, there's, you know, something else that's in your book that we don't even have time to talk about today is all of these theater actors that are continuing to do the work, but sort of to a smaller audience. Yes. So, uh, you mentioned Rod Steiger, who obviously never, you know, it's almost like he was born at the wrong time or something. Maybe he could have been a seventies film actor. If things had gone yeah. differently, Kim Stanley, who had her own sort of demons, but who you mentioned these two actors yes. as these sort of two of the best that American method had to offer that most people don't even know about. Absolutely. And instead, um, you know, it's the method has its, has its problems, but certainly it doesn't seem fair to equate it with Jared Leto over Kim Stanley, if you're talking about just just <laughs> sheer results, broken at results here. Um, yeah. If I can recommend two please. films, since we don't have time to talk about it, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Kim Stanley in The Goddess uh, and you haven't seen Rod Steiger in The Pawnbroker, I would just go out and watch those two movies. Because regardless of what you think of the films, I love them both. The Pawnbroker has a lot of fans. The Goddess is more controversial. But um, if you go out and watch them, you will see like, oh, that's what Lee Strasberg students could do that other people couldn't do. It's hard to imagine other actors doing what they do uh, in those movies. Um, Kim Stanley also has a late in life comeback on camera. She's in a couple movies and then she sort of quits again and moves moves back home. Um, and so there's a TV version of the of Cat on the Hot Tin Roof that's actually quite good with Jessica Lang, who was her student, um, that you can YouTube. Uh, and she's also in The Right Stuff. She's the bartender in The Right Stuff. So she has this like little mini moment and then sort of it wasn't for mm-hmm. her again and she quit. Well, this is my... Penultimate question, um, and it's kind of a 
just to sort of bring us up to the present, as present as, as we can, at least, uh, you talk about over the course of the decades that the method, the story of the method became the story of Hollywood. Uh, and that like the fringe, the method, which was one sort of fringe or an alternative becomes establishment. And yet at the same time, there's been, at least Twitter informs me that there's a kind of contemporary pushing back against the method. I'm thinking about the whole Jeremy uh, strong piece on succession. The Jeremy you know, Strong profile, yes. Worried about Lady Gaga, like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to what extent is this suspicion or hostility different or new from the hostilities and suspicions that the method has faced for, you know, the past, who, you know, whether you want to take it back as far as Stanislavski or even just take it back to the group theater or something? How long is it? How right. are they different? Does it have anything to do with its institutionalization as sort of the default? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. Um, well, one thing that's different about it is, of course, the method we're talking about is not the actual method. It's yes. the public understanding of it, the kind of Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, you know, so, so we're talking about a different series of behaviors. When people were mad about the method in the 40s and 50s and pushing back on it and resisting it, it was like, you know, why won't these people take direction? Why do they always have to have a motivation before they do anything? You know, they're like a weird cult. They all dress the same. You know, so it is a, it's, it's a different series of complaints. I would say that the complaints are also coming from a different place in terms of the power structure, painting with a very broad brush here, in that in the 40s and 50s, it was the establishment saying, what what is this garbage? This isn't real acting. Where's the elegance? Where's the pizzazz? You know, um, you have people like Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper, the notorious gossip columnist being like, these are a commie, commie rabble um, who don't know how to bathe. And just pick their crotches all day, you know, or I can't hear them past the fifth row, you know, that sort of stuff. Now it's a little bit different. And I think there's a few things that are coming together in this moment, which I have sympathy with and also don't have sympathy with. Um, part of it is just a workplace safety. Are you treating your coworkers well thing, which is, I think, totally valid. And I think is also really come to the fore um post me too because i think a decade ago you write that jeremy strong profile and everyone would have been like yes he's the greatest actor of his generation look at how hard he works right and now it's like well it seems like that's not really that great for his co-stars and i think one of the things that has changed is that we are just less tolerant of men uh trying to make their co-workers bend to their every women method of working whether that i mean strong hasn't done anything he's not sexually harassing people so i'm just i'm not saying that that's why we're doing it but i think that the equation of and this is a good thing of what men can get away with in the workplace has changed i think that's changing i think those norms are being actively debated and renegotiated right now and that is a positive thing but i think it is married with something that is a less positive thing which is that we as a culture seem to be getting ever increasingly hostile to people who take their work seriously and particularly to artists who take their work seriously. I think it is admirable that Jeremy Strong takes his work that seriously personally. I mean, I, I, I like Brian Cox. Sometimes I'm like, is he okay? I hope his hope he has a good therapist or whatever, you know, but, um, but we don't like it when artists take their work seriously. Um, and I think there's a kind of rise of, um, fan culture, which has lots of wonderful things about it, a rise of optimism, which has lots of wonderful things about it. But one of the negative side effects of that is that you're sort of not allowed to claim anymore that I am a artist 
that is something important. The work I do is important. It is meaningful and it requires something of me that is difficult and I take it seriously. That has really fallen out of fashion over the the last decade or so. And um, that I think is kind of sad. Yeah, I do. I think to your point, there is that I would say that there is a kind of, um, I don't want to say fetishization, but at least an adoration of actors who are like, I just come in and do the job. Like they like, that people like to hear that, but sometimes I'm yes. surprised by, you know, um, someone like saying like, I come in, I'm in like a movie about genocide. Like I'm weeping and then I just shake it off. I go home and like I play tennis and you're like, really you do? That's, that's amazing for you. Tony Collette, very famously, Tony, Tony Collette, who's an amazing crier, and I think a brilliant actress. I mean, one of the great actresses alive right now, Tony Collette. Um, she said in interviews all the time, she's like, no, no, I just turn it on and off. And it's like, whoa, I mean, I'm, it's impressive, but you know, not everyone can do that. I think so. No. Um, yeah. I, and I think I, I agree. I've thought about that. I mean, I think about that with, with Dustin Hoffman and all of the stuff that came out about him on the set of a lot of things. I mean, certainly Kramer versus Kramer. Um, but there were other. Death of a Salesman. His stage production of Death of a Salesman, he's gotten a bunch of accusations of mm-hmm. sexual harassment from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that we shouldn't tolerate that behavior. Don't get me wrong. No, but I think that you're right that that has, that has melded with with questions about, like, how do you yeah. formulate a performance, particularly when we're talking about what we think of as, like, archetypal method performances, which are full of agony and full of, like, ugliness and violence and sort of exposing all of that, mm-hmm. that bad stuff. Um yeah. How do you connect to the truth of that? Right. How do you connect to the truth of that in a way that still allows you to do your job? That's the problem that Stanislavski and Strasberg and Adler and Meisner and on and on and on have were confronting over and over and over again. How do you get in touch with the truth of this imagined reality of this other person who's just ink on a paper? Right. How do you do that in a way that is repeatable? Uh, and that um, can still enable you to do your job as a professional. And film poses a new challenge to that because uh, films are shot out of order. Uh, You know, you're shooting on a soundstage, you're doing weird takes, you know, you don't have the sense of momentum and living in a reality for an extended period of time that you get on stage. And so I do think that some of the weirder antics like remaining in character all the time and stuff are actually, when you think about it for a little bit, somewhat understandable workarounds for the problem of having to stay in the moment And then someone runs up to you and they do a little powder on your face and someone shouts action and suddenly you have to still be in the moment. So if you never leave the moment, you don't have to worry about getting back. You read a lot about sort of, I think that audiences, the public, I am very interested in sort of the little games that these film actors play, uh, Mm -hmm. like on power, the set of power of the dog, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, like never speaking to Kirsten Dunst off camera until the movie was over to make her additionally uncomfortable, which Seemed to me like maybe I I'm thinking like as Dunst, I'd be like, that's a lot, but maybe, but other sort of gentler versions of that, like in come on, come on, where the brother and sister who are estranged didn't see each other in person until the scene, but that's not going to make anyone go into a downward spiral in the same. It's it's all, it's all, you know, gray area in terms of what all the participants are, are comfortable with and consent to obviously. Uh, But I also think that the internet, internet discourse has made this additionally complicated because it seems as though the sympathy we have for actors putting themselves through the ringer results in kind of another form of internet bullying. Like, what are you doing, Lady Gaga? Stop ruining yourself, you 
nut. Like you're like, well, don't bully her about right. how she's bullying herself. That doesn't seem some like something that James Dean would have handled very well at all. Yeah, no, he would have just yeah. drunk the problem. Um, uh, R.I.P. But I just want to thank you so much for coming today. And my final question to you is if there's anything you would like to plug in terms of what you're working on now, what you're working on next, performance, exhibit, class. Oh, that's so kind. Well, um, uh, uh, I'm not sure when this airs. Um, uh, uh, you know, the book yeah. comes out February 1st. Um, we have an event February 2nd at Books Are Magic, February 3rd at The Strand. If you happen to be in New York, come to those. Um, there's going to be some virtual events from Book Soup and Politics and Prose the next week. Um, uh, uh, so please come check it out. You can hear a little excerpt of the book. I'll be in conversation with cool people. Um, A.O. Scott is doing one. Dana Stevens is doing another. Uh, Dana Schwartz is doing one. Uh, uh, Glenn Weldon's doing the one of politics and pro. So it's, it's cool folks. It's going to be, those will be fun conversations. I have my own podcast with slate called working, which is all about interviewing people about the creative process. Uh, you can subscribe to that wherever you get your podcasts or listen to it at slate.com slash working. Thank you so much, Isaac, for talking with me today. This was so uh, great. All right. You've been listening to new books film and I'm Annie Burke. Have a nice day, everyone.